Um, so, uh, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am delighted to be joined by uh, Matt Lohmeyer, uh, consultant, public speaker, author, and former Space Force commander. Uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, not a problem. It's uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, so, as I briefly sort of alluded to in the in the intro, you are author of Irresistible Revolution. Uh, Marxism goal of conquest, the unmaking of the American military. Uh, I saw the title and was immediately like, I need to read this book. <laughs> it's it's definitely provocative um, as a title. Uh, so why don't you start with maybe where when you first decided you were gonna gonna write a book? Like, because the, there's mm. the, there's always like a moment. Everyone has has like a, a that okay, right? This is it. I have to write about this. Like, when was yours? So yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I've teased in the past that you have to, I guess, maybe be odd or a little bit out of your mind if you really genuinely want to write a book, but I suppose there are authors in the world and um, I don't consider myself one of them. Uh, and so I didn't have the ambition to write a book, but I was in command in the Space Force and uh, was in, in charge of uh, our nation's space-based missile warning efforts, which are done, at least from a ground perspective, out of a Buckley Air Force Base in Colorado. Uh, and uh, I was in encountering political activism in a way that I hadn't seen before in the armed forces at my base and learned that this was a, a, a much more widespread problem than I was encountering just at my base alone. And um, that is not what led me to want to write a book. It was what led me to want to try and fix that problem uh, because anyone who's spent any time in the military or who's thought about it before appreciates that you don't exactly want uh, an overtly partisan workplace in the U.S. military uh, or any military for that matter um, that you hope to maintain unity and cohesion and morale and all those kinds of things. And so uh, I set about trying to provide some feedback um, to my chain of command, all the way up to the very top, had phone conversations with senior leaders and expressed my concern about what that was really doing to the morale of the military workplace. They agreed with me that it was a big problem, but uh, in a nutshell, I could say that we'd created a climate for ourselves in which it was, um, it made it difficult for them to hold political activists accountable for their activism. Uh, this was all in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. It was a very active season in the Western world for Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and other social justice activism, of course. Uh, we saw a lot of that in the headlines, in the news. And that rendered senior military leaders rather impotent, in my view, to take action when someone was acting unethically or illegally in the uniform. And so uh, I filed a formal written complaint, and that was later dismissed without even an investigation. And uh, it wasn't like it wasn't well documented. It was very well documented that there was illegal discrimination and conduct. And so my thought was, and this is the answer to your question, if I can't solve these problems using the apparatus that's available to me in the military, uh, specifically the chain of command, the inspector general channels and whatnot, then um, probably there's nothing like embarrassment that gets the Defense Department in the USA moving quickly. And um, so I thought I'd write a book about it, which was uh, a daunting consideration because, like I said, I didn't want to do that. But I spent the next four months 
uh, writing the book, I had already studied the topic of Marx's revolutions and saw the stink of Marxism all over what was currently happening in the West. And so, um, you know, it didn't arise over, it, it, it appeared to the lay citizen as if it had come up overnight, but um, it hadn't, it had been around a while. And so I was uh, wanting to trace the ideological roots of what we were seeing, wrote the book and was fired for it. Uh, the next week after publishing the book and, and speaking about it on a podcast, I was fired and um, and didn't recover my military career after that. So I've been speaking and uh, consulting with members of the military ever since. Yeah, I didn't realize it was literally a week after um, you. It was. Wow, I didn't realize quite, quite that soon. That's stunning. So well, I had, let me, let me clarify that I was fired from my command the, the week after I had published the book, but I was in the military still, I was still a Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, they don't just you know take all of that from you right away, but I was relieved of my command, which meant I was no longer in that position of trust. And they let me know when they fired me that they had lost their trust. No, they didn't say this when they fired me. They, they let the world know in a press release, uh, that they had, um, it was, it was an article. I mean, it was essentially a hit piece, but that they had orchestrated, they being the space force with military.com. Um, and, uh, the next morning I read in military.com that they had lost their trust and confidence in me as a leader. That's what they said in print. Well, that kind of damages your reputation a bit. Uh, and frankly, it wasn't true that they'd lost the trust and confidence in me. They were trying to cover their necks. And, uh, so um, I can say that with some certainty, although I'm sure they didn't like what I had done. Um, I think they trusted that I would always try and do the right things in, in leadership and in command. So uh, I was under investigation for about three months after that. And it was after that investigation that they pretended to make that uh, I wasn't found guilty of anything. I separated from the military without pay. And after 15 and a half years of service, just transitioned into civilian life and uh, kept speaking out about these things, um, which as we were talking about before we started recording, isn't necessarily what I study with every waking hour of my life, but I happen to know something about it. So I'm out speaking about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the world needs more people like yourself willing to, to say something. Um, I, I, there's, it's, it's actually a theme that I've, I've noticed um, amongst people who, who choose to to to, yeah, to to stand up and and say say what they believe to be is 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 like a, a truth that the world needs to hear is that quite often they're they're reluctant or at least the ones that I've spoken to um they tend to be quite reluctant in in coming forward but um yeah much respect for you for for you know oh thanks you know, yeah yeah we, we need we need people to speak up yeah you're right and and honestly, uh, that's that's really the only I think probably the only way that the the world gets fixed. Um, mm -hmm. There there isn't many many better ways to to change the world um, than speaking the truth. Um, so to that end, you have decided to write the book. So um, we'll get into the more uh, interesting and yeah. esoteric things I'm sure later on because there's a couple <laughs> of questions I want to ask right. you that will go down that road. But um, regarding the book and and. And yeah, you're you're spotting the signs of 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 Marxisms, like uh, of Marxism. Sorry, like could could you delineate a little bit, like what the signs that you had identified, and what 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 are these like red flags that you were seeing that you believe to be like insidious signs of of Marxism? Right. 
Okay. Um, I'm going to give an explanation that I know is, um, that can appear simplistic, although it is not overly simplistic and it's true. And people are beginning to realize precisely what this is, but I'll give this explanation with the understanding that Marxism of course has more political and economic nuance than I'm going to employ in my explanation. Okay. Um, but what I meant by a Marxist rooted critical race theory, for example, that's a phrase I use in my book or a Marxist impulse. It's the, um, oppressor versus oppressed narrative of human affairs that is prevalent in Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels 1848 communist manifesto. And that has been, that has typified Marxist revolutions all over the world, whether you're talking about the proletariat or the bourgeoisie classes, for example, which is more of an economic class stratification, uh, and struggle, or you're talking race relations, the black versus the white oppressor, uh, or I'm sorry, in this case, I should say white versus black oppressor versus oppressed group stratification, it's identity politics. And um, so again, forgive the over what, what is apparently an overly simplistic um, description, but it is what I meant when I, when I say in the subtitle that you read, Marxism's goal of conquest and the unmaking of the American military. There was something afoot anew in the military that was race identity politics which is, by the way, at least in the United States, the most powerful narrative you can seize upon in order to divide people and to um, group people into oppressor versus oppressed groups. It strikes at the core of our founding principles, equality and justice, you know, men are created equal. Um, those, those are things that people in the West very much believe in. Uh, and uh, if you're an American, you very much believe in the ideas of equality and justice. Uh, I would say if you had some philosophical nuance, I'd say within bounds, you, you believe in equality. But um, the goal of the Marxist, um, uh, this necessarily brings up questions about whether or not they know they're purveyors of Marxist thought. I get it. And uh, um, I've been over this ground. The, the goal of the Marxist ideologue, the, the true believer, and uh, the Marxist revolutionary. And uh, for so a great example of this is the Black Lives Matter organizers. They were admitted overt Marxist organizers. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's something they've said publicly a number of times, and now it's uh, abundantly clear, um, it is to um, create sufficient strife and division um, and group identities, tribes, that people will have enough animosity towards one another that they will probably they will deem it necessary to um, create an uprising or a violent revolution and to throw off the incumbent government and establish something new in its place. That something new is the establishment of the communist state. Um, and there's of course different degrees of socialism and uh, and uh, but the communist state is is indeed the end goal. And there's again, I want to be very clear about that. Anyone who knows what they're talking about understands this. So in order for um, freedom or liberty to abound, individualism must be highly regarded. And better put, the rights of the individual must be respected. And uh, what I mean by that, uh, those principles or ideas are defined in the Declaration of Independence. And they're not defined, but they're, they're specified 
at least in part, in the Declaration of Independence, the ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and originally in some of the state's constitutions, the, the right to property. Those things come under attack immediately, all of those things in, the, in Marxist thought. Uh, in fact, they come under attack in 1848 when Marx and Engels write the manifesto. It's an attack on the capitalist West, on property, on the bourgeoisie class. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we've heard this same sentiment expressed by the World Economic Forum and some of the elite. It's this idea that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy with it. You'll be happy about it. And that th those ideas are not compatible with um, with American founding values. Now, it might be very well what America becomes if we pursue that path. Uh, that would be unfortunate. But uh, Marxism is the ideological precursor to violent revolution that is intended to prepare the way for the communist state and it devalues and de-emphasizes uh, and, and disrespects the individual in favor of the community and the state. And of course, that isn't brought about by free will or of one's own volition, but by state force or compulsion or coercion. And uh, it's, it is quite totalitarian in spirit. And we've seen some of that manifest then, back to your question, what is it exactly that I meant? When people are forcing others to apologize for their privilege, their white privilege, when there's an insistence that because someone is in a privileged status, they are therefore ipso facto the oppressor class, and 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 um, all of that is Marxist. Uh, and before that, before there was ever a Karl Marx, it wasn't Marxist because there was no Marx, but it was the same thing. It was the same spiritual impulse. And uh, Jordan Peterson recently, um, someone pointed this out to me, but and I haven't listened to his podcast, but he calls it the spirit of Cain from the from what he'd call the Bible or Genesis creation myth. It is this idea that uh, the adversary comes whispering in one's ear and says, "Hey, you've been dealt with unjustly. You've been treated unfairly, and someone else has taken what rightly belongs to you, and you can use violence to take." that back and get it for yourself. And then after he commits the act of violence, Cain exclaims, uh, surely the, my brother's flocks fall into my hands. You know, he's finally achieved the thing he was looking for and it's through hatred and violence. And uh, so uh, th that's, that's what I meant when I was talking about the Marxist impulse. Okay. So, um, just to kind of make sure I've, I've got, got everything here um, that you said. Um, so essentially uh, the thing that you've honed in on, like amongst others, but uh, is that this, this idea of like the, 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 the division of, of society or any organization into two classes of people, like the oppressor and the oppressed. Um, and you were seeing examples of that and expressed like, People, people have to apologize for their privilege, whether that, I, I'm oh, not sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's, so, so that's, that's the, that's the expression of this, of this like Marxist red flag that, that you spotted. Um, yeah. Right. I guess I didn't really tell you how it was manifesting in the military, but yeah, yeah that's what I meant by the Marxist impulse. Mm -hmm. Now people may or may not have heard of a, a great, a great example of, of this kind of um, impulse being woven into the fabric of a telling of history uh, would be um, 
Nicole Hannah Jones, New York Times 1619 Project, for example. Now, she's just the lead, maybe a senior editor, if that was her title or role. And there were other journalists. And if if you read it, it's, it's a compilation of essays. Um, it came out, I don't know if it's been five years now. Uh, maybe it was 2018 or 2019 when it came out. But in writing my book, I thought... 2019, okay. In writing my book, I thought, you know, I got to read that whole thing. Um, so I got an online copy and nice color PDF of the entire project and read through the essays. I have, I've quoted examples of the kind of ideologically rooted rhetoric that appears in those essays uh, that seek to overemphasize certain ugly aspects of American history with the intent to create an entirely new narrative, a revisionist narrative of American history and its affairs. Now, what's powerful about it is that you can't write such a history without relying on facts and truth to some degree, because it's truth that has staying power, convincing power that is appealing to people. You have to have, you have to weave in the facts. And so they've done that um, by telling stories about American history, uh, factual stories, uh, more or less with an ideological fabric that they've, um, that they've, they've, they've used as the backdrop for those stories. And what's quite telling about that part project in particular is that, uh, if you're, if you want to talk, um, from an American perspective, the two major, uh, political parties, Democrats and Republicans, they have historians that do incredibly different types of historical work on both sides of the political aisle, and both sides of the aisle have come out condemning that project as not history, but pure ideology, which tells you something about it. If Democrats are willing to come out, for example, and say, hey, look, we're not even the conservative ones, but this is disgusting. It's meant to tear down and destroy. It's not meant to teach anything, yeah. right? And so my base commander, for example, was teaching the troops at his base talking points that come right out of that kind of ideological framework about American history. Now, here's why this is a tremendous problem for a military. When a young man or woman um, shows up to put on the same uniform and to join the military, they swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution against its enemies, both foreign and domestic. And then at some point in their career, they grapple with what does it mean to support and defend the Constitution against its enemies, both foreign and domestic? Well, one of the things I point out in my book is that Nicole Hannah-Jones and the journalists at the New York Times seem to me to be the purveyors of an anti-American, anti-Constitution, an anti-declaration, anti-American founders, anti-anything you can think early American. Uh, they're, they're a force of, of anti-Americanism and the rhetoric that they use and employ in their, in their, in their essays. Uh, now it's, it's subtle in some places, don't get me wrong, but for a base commander then in uniform to push out the same talking points that save things, for example, to these troops who have sworn this oath, you know, I know you've signed up to support and defend the constitution against its enemies, but did you know the constitution is really just an evil framework to establish white supremacy in the United States? I mean, talk about a great way to sow the seeds of division at a U.S. military base for a senior leader to say that to the troops. 
Uh, so why don't you all go home and do your homework? And, and uh, when you come back on Monday, uh, I want you to bring examples of the ways in which you've abused people of color in your life. If you're white, if you're black, I'd like you to come back and tell us ways um, that you've been abused. And let's have a serious conversation about this. Um, you know, th those kinds of things, first off, is not what our military is meant for. Uh, if, 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 if ideologues at the university campuses want to try and get into some of that stuff, I suppose that people can uh, go into debt to be um, propagandized if they'd like. But when people sign up to and join the military, they expect to do a mission in support of national security and to leave all that stuff at the door. And so um, in seeing that, and it wasn't just at my base, it's now a part of U.S. policy that uh, we teach some of this garbage to our men and women in uniform um, in the form of diversity and inclusion trainings. And that's part of the Biden administration's policy. And uh, frankly, it's not going to change until there's a different person in the seat. It's, it's policy. And all of our senior military leaders just point to the policy and say, well, we're just teaching the policy. Mm. Um, but it's really disincentivizing people, uh, good people, from, from serving their country in uniform. It's disincentivizing veterans from recommending to their, their nieces and nephews and their grandchildren to serve. Uh, so it's turning into a really big uh, problem. Yeah. Yeah, the the rewriting of history is always one that that strikes me. I always wonder. I'm like, how do you not see that this 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 is like really? You don't even have to invoke Marxism or like get people's, you know, because you then have to, you know, assume people's like knowledge and understanding of like what the ideology is about. But you can you just have to invoke like 1984, and then well, I mean, it's a bit of a stereotype, a bit of a a cliche mm -hmm. now and then people roll their eyes but you know, that's literally what they did that, that's like the that's what the main character's job was <laughs> literally right. rewriting history um, yeah well you know when i first read that book i thought man he pegs it like how did he get it so right this is all happening what's well, because he he was living through it right and he saw this and so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily prophetic he was just being descriptive of, of how this stuff works mm. and why it's so critical that they always go after history is because you can't properly orient yourself in the present moment, your place on the world stage and your tribe or your country without an appreciation for some of the real struggles of history. And, and admittedly, there's different ways to tell history, right? I mean, people can take, bring a different bent to the telling of history, but, but one thing that's clear is that if you've been trained to see it properly, um, there is a line that can be crossed where it's it's abundantly clear that someone has a very particular aim in mind in their telling of history, and it's it's simply to tear down, to criticize, um, to call into question everything in the hope that it might be torn down or burned down, as they'd say often. Uh, and um, there's been a lot of that, unfortunately, now in the U.S. military. And it's not. Um, sometimes I hear from some people, well, I haven't seen this isn't often. It's not, it's not often that this happens, but sometimes I've heard people say, well, I haven't seen uh, in the military what you're talking about. And I say, well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. It's not yeah. everyone's experience, but uh, you know, good. I'm glad you haven't seen it. Uh, it's either because you need to wake up a little bit or because genuinely you've had a great experience in the last couple of years at the base you've been assigned to. And that's good. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's nice to know it's not, not, you know, blanket coverage. Yeah. Um, I think, I think what, what, what drives quite a lot of, I think possibly the way that, that a lot of this, this sort of thought has entered 
like the military and then like our our wider cultural like political conversation um more generally is because of you said there it's like it's it's a you know we have to tear things down like that's that's what the, the goal is and and unfortunately i think a lot of our institutions have 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 become like degraded and um lost touch with their original um purpose in a, in a and become completely like corrupted whether that's because of like you know corporate influence or just you know bureaucracy or you know there's a whole bunch of reasons that, that our institutions are sort of crumbling and there's a lot of irreverence towards them and and like rightly so and it makes it easier for that sort of thought to 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 sort of make its way through society and, and we can decide that well you know it kind of sucks now so you know let's just burn it all down and start again yeah i think those things that you've mentioned are all a part they're all factors in this equation and i well i was writing about marxism of course i'm i'm not under any illusion that that's the sole um driver of the troubles that we face although it's uh, in my view a very big part of what's happening it's it has a lot of explanatory power for example in the university setting the in the academy um it is predominantly where critical thought or critical theory originated. I mean, it was a hundred, it was nearly a hundred years ago with Marxists who had as their aim, uh, the disintegration of the fabric of Western society, its government, its legal system, its uh, cultural integrity. And so how is it that we affect, you know, this, this whole, uh, poor suffering middle-class thing, this narrative really isn't going over well in the West. How do we solve this problem? Well, there's other narratives we can seize upon to drive the same wedges between people into different groups and tribes and racism is an excellent one in this country uh, there's a there's a, a famous black economist thomas Sowell, who's quite famous uh, i'm going to get the quote wrong but he said um racism isn't dead but it is on life support and it's kept alive by race hustlers and politicians who stand to gain by keeping it alive and so uh, the marxists too uses narratives to its advantage to divide people because that is a part part of the aim of tearing down the incumbent system uh, so how does this infiltrate the military well people and you know the military for some time has placed a, a tremendous emphasis on getting its senior uh, military officers better educated higher education advanced degrees and so they spend a significant amount of time in the uh, in the institutions of higher learning and while they're there, they're exposed to a lot of this thought. Um, and also the military to a large degree is simply a reflection of broader American society. And society's been slouching towards Gomorrah, to use the phrase of um, uh, the late Justice Robert Bork. Uh, he has a book by that title, which is quite well done. And I think social media helps push this along. And... Um, and helps these ideas gain traction. Mainstream media, which is bought, helps these ideas gain traction. And um, and the policy, as I mentioned, of the current administration helps these ideas gain traction. And oh, by the way, if you have a um, diversity and inclusion-centric hiring policy, then the people that you're hiring to positions may have a particular uh, 
you know, freakish kind of bent to their social or political worldview that's nearly religious in nature, and they're going to hire and attract people to them of a like spirit and mind. And so this is a uh, this is this grows even when decent people are speaking up, trying to draw attention to some of the problems. And uh, so when people teach about it, uh, you know, I'm often asked the question, are we making any progress in solving these issues? I say, well, we're certainly waking people up to the issues, but the problems need to be solved, not just by people being educated. We need to change policy as well and have certain right of the right leaders in place as well. It's a, it's a hard problem and it takes time. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that that really like kept that kept like sort of kept hitting me while I was reading the book, or I've been reading the book, and it's it's that the military itself, like, is is obviously incredibly hierarchical, uh, hierarchical, hierarchical, mm-hmm. um, and and that is just like so antithetical to everything that Marxism like stands mm-hmm. for in in a sense and and there's there's that sort of really strange contrast that they like these ideas are 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 yeah they're being pushed within a structure that just should outright reject them like the especially the people serving within it there they should be thinking they there's no way that 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 those two like worldviews should be able to collide it's like yes i'm gonna partake in this like very structured um like mm-hmm. hierarchical system um, you know, we take orders. You know that you're deferential mm-hmm. to to you know command, and uh, I'm also at the same time going to be saying that in all relationships, there's nothing but power and this oppressor versus oppressed narrative, and and it also strikes me that that the way this is like infiltrated society in 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 kind of the way you mentioned in the fact that like the media are bought and and this and this is all very like corporate trendy with their like DNI training programs and the ESG scores and, you know, everything to be, you know, pro woke. Like that's, that's the, you know, the corporate drumbeat at the minute, essentially in, in, in a lot of ways. And, and that is totally antithetical to, to, (laughs) to Marxism as because private corporations wouldn't exist in a, in a, in the communist state, which like, you know, as you laid out mm-hmm. like as the, the ultimate goal for, for the ideologues. Like, h- how do you think that these contradictions can all exist without like, I don't know, somehow confronting each other? Well, one thing that's of note from a practical perspective in the military, to your point about the hierarchy that exists in the military, there is a chain of command in a military organization. There are enlisted troops, there are officer troops, and, and that's how typically it works in our main branches of the military. Uh, and uh, one thing that's manifested as a consequence of teaching some of this stuff to the troops is that I, I've seen videos go viral on TikTok or Twitter in the past couple of years where some young troop is unwilling anymore to be told what they should or shouldn't do by senior leaders. Uh, and they will allege that it's just because they have a status of privilege or they're an oppressor or it's because of my race that you're telling me what to do, which is absurd. And in fact, commanders have to be able to tell their troops within legal and ethical boundaries what it is that they shouldn't be sh- should and shouldn't be doing in pursuit of the mission that they are supposed to accomplish. And um <clears throat> So, boy, it is a tough balance, especially for a young man or woman in uniform who's who's um, 
aware of the difficulty that these ideas are posing to the military workplace to it's a it's a difficult needle to thread to learn how to properly respectfully stand upon your values or your principles and to speak up and say there's something about what's happening here that i uh don't appreciate that is against my values um that i think is dividing us and to do it in a way that is respectful of your chain of command because you don't want that to break down either and so that's one of the reasons this is so dangerous for a military that thrives in unity and cohesion uh everyone does the same mission regardless of their politics the race and that's the way it's always worked because you show up and you say well hey you and i are very different people but we're willing to go fly on each other's wing and die and kill for each other and that's what matters the most and instead it's like um let's let's take a knee just one more day and talk about sensitivity and how we can treat each other more inclusively based on which tribe we happen to fall into and how many intersectionalities we happen to have all of that starts to really piss people off quite frankly and um and creates bitterness and resentment um and uh i mean it doesn't take much thought if you if people have not thought about this uh to figure out why that is if they've not experienced it already themselves and so yeah it is it's a paradox a bit that in a hierarchical hierarchical institution like the u.s military uh this this kind of thing um even gets any ground makes makes any makes any headway but again i mean you know when these kids aren't in the seat doing whatever mission they do they're sitting there uh, looking at their twitter account and their tiktok account and they're being fed information constantly bombarded with um certain ideas they get together in small groups uh, at my base they got together and of course uh, and certain uh, you know the the chaplain is having black only uh, firesides to help them figure out how to deal with white supremacy and the on the base as if it existed and, and i'm sure it didn't um because i was a leader on the base if it did it would have been squashed instantly and someone would have been fired and kicked out of the military but there's these narratives that they built it's like well watch out because there's certain groups here that are out to get you and hurt you so let's meet together to their exclusion and let's talk about how we can solve the problem of the other and here's one here's a critical point i want to make that there's it's probably useful for people to begin thinking about what about this woke moment that we're seeing all about us as a kind of religious revolution okay it's how it's, and i say helpful because let me let me characterize it in religious terms it's an emotional and spiritual impulse every bit as much as it ever was political or economic okay it tells you who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. It defines them for you, who the evil is and who the good are, who the righteous are. It tells you how to repent for your mistakes and your sins and what those sins really are. And it tells you how you can be redeemed and get in good with the, the fellowship or the, or the brotherhood or the whatever you want to call it. And it tells you how to get salvation, uh, not in the next life, but in this life. And it, it is the, um, it is tearing down the other and it's tearing down the incumbent system whereas say your typical i'd say i'll say christian uh, instead of saying judeo-christian but a typical christian worldview will tell you that hey i need to sacrifice me and what is inside me and lay that on the altar and perhaps i have some hope of contributing properly to the civil society and serving other people and they do all of that to make this world a better place and hopefully get some reward in the afterlife 
uh, all this godless wokeism says is that no, 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 you're okay. You need to be included. You've got merit too, despite all the um, uh, the crap that you're wading through. And it's the other person that's the problem. And so through a little bit of abuse and coercion, you can get them into your camp. And maybe we can even formulate some policy in the meantime uh, that makes them all have deference to your thought, to your way of thinking. Uh, it's utterly backwards. It turns everything on its head and it's religious in its fervor and its insistence. It's a kind of, um, I mean, there have been violent religious pursuits in world history and uh, this yeah, is not unlike those. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's like <laughs> politics and religion. They divide people and this is very political and religious. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that the growth of these, these ideas is a, a result of or the cause of like the decline in um amount of religion within society or the increase in secularism mm -hmm. i think it's both okay i think that um adoption of these ideas is a direct consequence of the vacuum that's left when people abandon um i'm going to try and be as broad generous and generic as i can be when people abandon the religious worldview um, because people crave meaning and purpose and this kind of, I mean, this isn't just a hollow philosophy. It is, uh, it has a moral imperative to it. It's ideology. And it tells people what to do to be more righteous, like I said. And so then they have meaning again, they have purpose and they've joined a fight that helps them realize they're actually making a difference, whether or not it's a good difference. And so, um, yeah, I think it comes in direct consequence of the abandonment of God. I'll put it that way more specifically. And I also think um, that the reverse is true, uh, that the more, pe the more people pursue this, the more angry people get, uh, even if they don't want to participate in it at all. It's so easy to have the angry emotional response to all of this nonsense that we see. And that's not good for society either. And it makes it makes people people become filled with anger to ang anger and hatred and emotion and are willing to potentially use violence against other human beings um you, you you're watching the decline of nations happen right before our very eyes it's always easier to see in retrospect but that's that's precisely what's happening and and in religious terms it causes people to lose the spirit of god uh, which is the spirit of freedom as the new testament says so uh, I'm inclined to think they go hand in hand. Mm. And but on the on the flip side of that, I don't know if you've mm -hmm. seen this, but I've I've seen the past, especially the past eighteen months to two years, like a like a, I don't know if it's a more vocal or like a growing number of people like making the opposite opposite journey, you know, from from having. Oh yeah. Great point. Yeah, I like. Do which do you think that's a, a strong enough countervailing force? A good question. You know, there's that saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. It's this idea that, <laughs> like, in the terror of the battlefield, men will come to God. And there's something so awful and dark about um, what's happening about us that it is waking people up. And fr frankly. It's reawakening a spiritual side of of some humans that maybe had put it off for a season, and I think that's good too. And that's all that all works this way. I mean, it's supposed to be that way. Um, 
And uh, you're right, there is a balance. I, and I failed to mention that. Uh, I think, you know, there's an a speaking of uh, esoteric traditions or the, the ancient occult or something like that. Uh, in Hermeticism, there's this belief that um, there is this essential tension, the principle of polarity that exists. There's an opposition, uh, there's a counterbalancing force in the cosmos. It's certainly true in this world. And it's not just a physical principle, it's on all planes of reality. It's spiritual, it's emotional. And so if there is a darkness rising, you have to trust too. And, and I think you can observe this, that there is a counterbalancing with light, goodness, genuine goodness, uh, people trying to do the right thing in the face of hard times. And um, Oh, there's a saying something about that. I won't. I won't get it right. But um, people have heard it before. It's like the, the 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 terrible times make strong men, and the strong men's make better times, and all of that kind of thing. And I think that there's truth in that because when darkness rises, I think that some human souls will rise up and meet that with light and truth and goodness, and with valor and with courage, integrity, uh, even with patience, which is I think desperately needed uh, now. But um, despite how desperate things look. That's a great point. Mm. So what what gives you the <clears throat> the strength maybe is the maybe not quite the word but like what what makes you decide to be one of those people? Well, I was, I'm glad I didn't say what gives you the hope that this is going to work out. I was going to say I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh well strength uh probably you know, there's there's physical strength. People work hard at that. You know, if you, I see, I was just at the gym before I came here to interview you, and I see people in there slaving away, so to speak. Um, those terms are taboo these days. They're working hard in there, and they're uh, trying to forge muscle, and uh, they know that it doesn't come without effort. And I think there's a parallel there in the psychological or spiritual sense. The mental strength or fortitude to pursue um, a resistance of darkness or to try and be a person of integrity comes with a certain, it usually isn't just gifted flat out at birth. I mean, people acquire that through effort and also through the right kind of minded, you know, mindedness, uh, mindfulness, uh, through a study of ideas. Uh, because who can have courage in the face of ideas if they themselves aren't certain of certain things and can't stand on their own two feet? Uh, I know a lot of military men and women who ha who have physical courage and are willing to go die for their country, but when they're confronted with an ideologue on the stage, they know something isn't quite right about what they're hearing, but they're not going to stand up and say something because they don't know how to articulate an, an opposing view. So how can you have courage to stand up and say nothing, Right. So I think there's an effort that has to go into that. And I think knowledge is an important part of that. Mm. Yeah, that that is, I think that's, that's I think, a skill that's becoming, and, and in the same way that you've talked about things like, like TikTok and, and Twitter or YouTube being a, a vector through which, like, these ideas spread, like, just as we talked about, I think there's a countervailing force in that there is viral clips of people shutting down this kind of ideology whether that's with like really well articulated like philosophical points or whether that's sometimes just with simple reasonable questions um, right. in many cases um, that's right uh, so 
So I think there's the that that is becoming something that people people are like better armed with the language with which to to refute that some of some of these ideas now, whereas they may not have been, say, like five, ten years ago when these things first started to like propagate. Yeah, you know, you brought up such a good point, and it's something that most of us just aren't good at, and it's asking questions. Even if you don't think you have all of the answers, uh, make someone who's imposing a worldview on you explain themselves. And that takes a little bit of courage in of itself because it's uncomfortable for us in the face of something that we seem to maybe blatantly disagree with to say, what do you mean by that? And, and then let them talk a little bit more, see if they know what they're talking about. And then um, if something doesn't quite sit right, say, you know, I don't understand that. And that takes humility and, or a kind of willingness to acknowledge, you know, I've never thought about this, but I'm curious to hear more about your view about it. So help me understand, help persuade me that that's a, a valid way of looking at things. And maybe in the course of that dialogue, we can actually realize some things and learn some things ourselves that we'll actually be able to articulate in that dialogue. Uh, now, most radical activists aren't interested in dialogue, uh, but when the, but this is especially helpful if you've got friends or family that seem to have a very different view than you. Uh, ask questions and um, see where it goes. And maybe both of you will get a good laugh. Um, I've seen a, quite a few people break down the moment they're asked any questions. And uh, they say, well, the fact that you're questioning me means you're a bigot. Okay, well, that's the end of that conversation. Like, clearly, you don't have any depth. And um, it, it helps. You know, it helps. And so ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I also find that sometimes people people's actual view is, is far far less extreme than the, the, the sort of one-liner that they've got off of that's Twitter. That's right. Um, you know, when you when you like actually break them down, they're far more reasonable than their initial statements may seem. Oh, that's a great point too. And we're good at parroting what we hear from others. And so even if you know, there are genuinely decent people who really believe in the idea of including all others. They've got a much better heart or soul than you or I, let's say, and they're really good at that. And so they're so susceptible to some of the current talking points. And they're like, Yeah, like I really don't like all this trans activism, but I want to be inclusive of everyone and like have them find their place in the world. And so they're victims and yeah. um, having dialogue with them might be a lot easier. In fact, and you might find a lot of common ground. Yeah. Yeah. Quite possibly. Um, so since, since we're like zooming out um, a little <laughs> bit, um, we can get on to, onto space <laughs> since, yeah, you were a, um, a space force commander, uh, I believe. Um the some of the things you you talked about on your with your interview with Randall Carson. So I I mentioned mm. that that I thought it was uh, really cool that he was your your first interview um, mm -hmm. once uh, as as the first guest on on your show. And the reason that I find it really really interesting is because immediately after sort of laying out like your reasons um, for writing your book and what you wanted to do with the podcast and and. Um, you know, talking about uh, your beliefs about um, you know Marxism's infiltration in the American military. Like the first thing that you chose to do was then go and speak to a guy who's interested in Earth as like this tiny little vessel on a cosmological like mm -hmm. scale. Um, <laughs> I I thought it was fantastic. Um, so 
is that something that was like encouraged within um within the space force was to try and think about earth's position within like the solar system and the wider universe or was that just something you sort of went off and did yourself is that was on me and not something that the space force encourages uh <clears throat> I, I want I, I want the Space Force to think about space in that way. And uh, they're uniquely in a position to consider things outside of terra firma, unlike the Army or even the Air Force or the Marine Corps, the Navy. I mean, they're all stuck in water and on land and in mud. And Space Force, while we operate in a ground-based operation center, we're using capabilities up in low Earth orbit and medium Earth orbit and geosynchronous orbit and highly elliptical orbits the space force by and large has taught its um its guardians that's the name of our space force personnel to think about those orbits those are all very close to the earth on the even on the solar system scale because nasa is interested in uh exploration and science and specifically in things like cislunar space now you bring the moon into the picture and the private sector, people like Elon Musk are interested in Mars and Martian space. Now you have more and more interest from some of those personnel in the Space Force in the Moon and in Mars, uh, and maybe even in between Mars and Jupiter and the asteroid belt. Well, I met Randall Carlson, and he was talking about near-Earth asteroids and planetary defense and the transition from the Pleistocene to the Holocene. And I was already very interested in that stuff, and he knew I was Space Force, and I knew he was into that, and so we had something to talk about right away. Uh, I tried to get Randall to come join us in the Space Force mm -hmm. uh, to help you know, talk about some of that stuff and expand the horizons of our men and women in, in the Space Force uniform never got the chance to because I was out, out of the seat after not too long. But um, that's, you know, I spend more of my time thinking about that stuff than I do Marxism, in fact. And it's not just bounded to Mars and the moon. It's, you know, where, where do we fit in, in, into things? Uh, cosmology is of interest to me. Uh, how does the solar system fit into a galaxy, for example, and beyond? And there's all these spheres of influence uh, from the microcosm, inside of you and me in the cellular level these protons and nu nuclei with a bunch of electrons whizzing about in orbits uh, perhaps all the way out to what we can observe overhead and so that's all fascinating and uh randall's a good person to talk about that stuff yeah yeah no doubt um was was there ever any mention of 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 like the does, did space force look at any of the the asteroid um stuff that he's talked about what is it the the oh, i cannot remember the name you know the the, the group he's a part of they're they're watching for for asteroids basically coming at coming at us um yeah there's a few different groups there's a comet research group, that comet research group. that's that's the mm -hmm. one yeah um well nasa has a planetary defense division nasa which is a government civil side of the house not defense department has more interest in that stuff than our defense department does. I suppose a part of that is because most of our military people, men and women in the space force came out of another branch of the military, which was the air force. And we were thinking about other things that were more uh, geocentric and it'll take time to shape that culture. But also um, there are some few people 
in the Space Force whose mission, uh, thinking about how to say it, whose mission does um, bring them into contact with the folks at NASA who do planetary defense. And uh, there's a, there's some cooperation there. And um, and so I, th I hope that we'll grow into that. But war and peace, the issue of war is essentially, as Carl von Clausewitz said, the extension of politics by other means. It's when rhetoric, it's when words fail to do the job and diplomacy fails that violence ensues. And uh, so the leaders of the Space Force are far more caught up in Russia and China and how that impacts what we're doing in space and how we can counter them in space than they are about what some unknown rock from deep in the solar system or from the asteroid belt might uh, uh, pose uh, for us by way of trouble in the immediate future. Uh, that's that's kind of far. Those are those are not alligators that are near the boat. Mm. But it's so exciting, in fact, that I wish more Space Force people were thinking about it, talking about it, because it would be a great way to attract the the space nerd to the Space Force where they need to be working, and um, and it would help shape a a completely unique and independent culture from the other branches of the military, I think. How realistic is it, do you think, to, to look at humans as a multi-planetary species, like on a, say, like a hundred year time scale? This will disappoint some people. Uh, I don't think it's in the cards. Okay. What makes you say that? What what is What is your reason that it won't happen? Well, it's somewhat related to what we've been talking about. I'll leave it at the political and uh, conflict level. I think we're far more likely to destroy ourselves before we ever develop the technology to get there. Oh God! And and that's a that's a pessimistic view. Everyone's clamoring about artificial intelligence at the moment. That's one of a thousand ways that things can go south. Um, uh, the sun, from an from an astronomical or a cosmological perspective, things completely outside of human control. The sun and asteroids, for example, could change everything before. 10 more years is up. It's not uncommon for big rocks to smash into the earth. Uh, it's just been uncommon since the 1850s. <laughs> and uh, so, or like I, I should say about a hundred years ago, Tunguska was, I think, 19 something, 1913, maybe. Yeah, I think it was, and so, I think it was 17. No, it was, I think it was in the last century. Tunguska. No, no, I mean, 1917. Oh, was it? Uh, Tunguska event. Oh, sorry. We're both wrong. 1908. 1908. So, uh, and the, and the rock didn't do it, but it leveled some forests yeah. and, um, something like that. <laughs> well, and that. then we had Chelyabinsk, uh, just in the last decade, the Chelyabinsk bolide came in, sonic booms, smashed windows, injured thousands of people. And it's a small rock. So, uh, those kinds of things pose a risk, not just to humans on life, but to our entire space-based infrastructure and architecture. Um, one satellite being smashed by a rock from space could ruin it for all the other satellites because of how the mechanics of the orbits work. Yeah. So, um, that's, and, and there's really, like I said, a thousand other potential ways in which we could set ourselves back into the stone age pretty quick. And, um, I think that that's far more likely than everyone keeps getting along so well that we continue to develop the knowledge, the technology well enough to become interplanetary. Even if Elon Musk lands on Mars someday, I don't think that means we become an interplanetary species. That's a tall order.
what about do you think private space exploration could see like billionaires have their own colonies like or a space yeah, station yeah, or possible. something <laughs> maybe on the moon hmm. um i think that's possible uh that's far more likely than than that humanity becomes interplanetary hmm. uh you know space tourism very much in the realm of possible uh if we have reusable rockets continuing to be developed like elon musk has done hmm. And cost is driven way down. I think it's possible that uh, humans will have joy rides to space and get to experience that. Uh, so so long to the flat Earth community. Um, I think it's possible that we could set up colonies uh, and do manufacturing and um, some bit of industrialization of the moon's surface. Um, in fact, China is racing to do just that. I think it's possible that we could try and extract resources or minerals from nearby asteroids. And there are countries that have demonstrated that. So those are all in the realm of possible. Uh, but it just, we're a ticking time bomb as far as some of the other uh, humanity currently in the tech modern age is uh, really in a precarious balance right now. And when you're in a precarious balance in a complex system, almost the flapping of a butterfly's wings could disrupt the entire thing. And so it, it's, uh, we'd just be grateful for the good time that we have while we've got it and live life to the fullest, I guess. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, both empowering and slightly depressing at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, we can only do what we've got the, the means to do, but you know, people who have that ambition like Musk, we should never just, you know, he can discourage himself with artificial intelligence, but I think it would be foolish to discourage the private billionaire who has the ambition to go to Mars from doing just that. Right. Mm. Yeah, and, then go, uh, look, go for did it. Did you see his, uh, did you see his launch of the starship uh, a couple of weeks back? Yeah. When he was just like, <laughs> I mean, that was the biggest rocket that's launched since the, the Apollo mission with the Saturn five. Mm. It's uh, it's quite the accomplishment because someone's a visionary and he's got lots of money to play with. Yeah. More than a lot of governments have to play with. Yeah. Oh, well, more than they're willing to spend. <laughs> that's right. More than they're willing to spend on fun things. <laughs> yep, that's right. I don't know. That's that's somewhat pessimistic, perhaps, It's but it's realistic in my view. And uh, Speaking of fun things yeah. that the government may or may not have money to spend on. What do you think these um, UAP things are that the the gov that the the Congress just had their sort of like UFO report thing coming out and what was it? There was like one hundred and forty two identified incidents or some some something like that. Um, what do you think these things are? I don't know what all of them are. I, and in the same vein, I could say I don't know what any of them are, mm. but I can say that um, it's my view that probably. The governments of the world are involved in those technologies and not extraterrestrial uh, life. I believe in extraterrestrial life. Uh, but beyond stating that, whatever image that conjures up in any of your listeners' minds uh, is a different question. I'm not responsible for that. Um, but I but I do believe that um, there's intelligent cosmos and that the cosmos are populated with intelligence that we're not an anomaly. Uh, but the idea that, um, 
someone might travel between star systems and a little craft that crashes into a field, for example, is um, that starts to stretch reason to me. And, um, and when, you know, if you've been in the military long enough, then um, you get to appreciate just the a smallest taste of some of what technology we worked on for decades before it ever became public. And um, so it's my suspicion that probably much of what we've reported on or others have reported on and what people are seeing is a, uh, you know, by way of a UAP or a craft of some kind is uh, a government capability. Uh, and, and it really helps them keep it under wraps to have the world thinking that it's extraterrestrial. But, um, you know, I've seen interesting things as well. And uh, some things don't look like they can be man-made. And so you have to then wonder, is it natural phenomenon? And what kind of a natural phenomenon is that? It's not ball lightning. It's not, and what is that thing? And so I don't want to dismiss what people have seen. There's that too. I, I can't explain that though. I'm just an observer who's watched like everyone else wondering at these things. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, you were that's my something. very realistic down to earth take on that stuff. Yeah. I was hoping you were going to have some uh, insider space force knowledge. Like, right. Okay. So really we're yeah. in, uh, yeah. we've got an agreement with the grays, uh, and they are yeah, fighting right. this other race of, of, of aliens and, uh, they're giving us technology. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the Galactic that. Federation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I mean, the the former head of the Israeli space, yeah. uh, space. I think was it space program. I think, I, yeah, former head of the Israeli space program came out and said, uh, "Yeah, they're they're all off world. They're just waiting for us to stop fighting." Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I guess it's not beyond the realm of possible. But I had a a gal reach out to me maybe a month ago asking um, if I'd be willing to share with her what I knew of the secrets of the Galactic Federation. Mm -hmm. And I agreed to have a phone conversation with her. I took the opportunity to not talk about, I, I mean, I've only encountered that. I, I haven't spent a lot of time looking into that stuff, but, uh, we talked about, uh, angels instead and, uh, scripture. And so, uh, she wasn't expecting that. She hasn't called back asking for, uh, any, uh, more information on the galactic federation. And, uh, you know, but I, it's like, at some point I think, well, there's some things I do believe and know about, so, uh, I can share that, but, uh, then there's the realm of speculation. Uh, and you know, this is, this seems tangential, but it's somewhat related, I suppose. What, what's increasingly popular is the idea that the earth is flat. Uh, there's, there's YouTube videos about it, so, uh, but more and more people are interested in that for one reason or another. And they have, some of them have good reasons. Um, but I have some friends that believe it. And um, I tell them I flew F-15s for the Air Force and have done, you know, we've launched things into space. I've talked to people on the International Space Station. And I've watched the Earth from 22,000 miles up in outer space. I could tell you what things look like, at least, I mean, even optically, but I used infrared sensors. And uh, the response is usually something like this. But have you been there? I said, well, no, I've not been there. Well, then you don't know. You're you're part of the big lie kind of a thing. Uh, and one of the things, it's just really a curious thing to me. That too becomes a kind of religious worldview for, for folks who then end up believing it. And I can ask you a dozen questions that are science-based. 
that I'd like to have someone with that model explain to me how their model explains those scientific questions. And of course, they won't have answers to those questions. Um, but they're not interested in the logic of it. They're not interested in what their model does or doesn't do. They're interested in their newfound view and that it's helped provide some explanatory power to some aspect of their life. Let's say Genesis chapter one, uh, because, Hey, I get it now. I can read that text in a new way. And, um, and one, one of the things that's done for some people as I've heard this often, heard it around the country. In fact, uh, I just don't know what to believe anymore. I, I don't know what's true or false. That's a pretty sad state of affairs uh, in the information age to not know what to believe anymore. And while there's um, very real reason that that's a problem in our modern society, it shouldn't be you or I. I mean, we've got every every way at our disposal to like develop a firm mind, believe in both good science and good philosophy or religion, and then and then properly characterize speculation as such and reality as such and start to work through things. And um, you start believing in all sorts of theories that are ungrounded in reality. Um, you kind of lose your bearings on reality. Mm. Yeah, I think the last few years has been it's been tough to to hang on to your to, to reality and, and sanity sometimes in 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 many aspects. Um, and and this actually brings us beautifully full circle right at the end here. This is oh, going to be fantastic. Okay, um, so we're talking about people being feeling like they don't know what to believe anymore. That they're sort of maybe a little bit lost in the information age amidst yeah reams of information. Last thing anyone predicted, but there you go. <laughs> um, and sometimes it seems to me like this. And it's been alleged by by many people that some of this confusion and unknown um, is just um, a result of people's. It's a result of like deliberately trying to undermine people's grounding in reality, like especially like through through parts of of COVID and stuff. That I saw a lot of accusations that that you know the 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 media were attempting to like break people or gaslight people. And I mean, I've seen some quite compelling evidence that there was at least some of that going on. Um, oh yeah. And one of the things that I was wondering earlier about is in this ultimate pursuit of the, the communist state that, that the, the ideologues that we started with um, speak about, there also seems to be like a deliberate, um, message at least or a line of messaging coming from the the dni esg like corporate world like the 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 oppressors of of the world in 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 that worldview in a sense and i i just i, I it seems to me that what they're doing is like laying the seeds for their own destruction unless they hope to just use whatever chaos they might be fostering to take over and become the state so, like, do do you yeah. think that that is the likely or that their likely goal ultimately with 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 this? I think there are those elite, powerful, uh, who believe that a global state is necessary to make this world a better place. Um, <clears throat> I don't agree with that, 
But one of the ways in which that is accomplished is by the degradation of U.S. economic and military supremacy on the global stage, because you can't bring about a new world order if the global hegemon, the United States, remains uh, in a position of influence and respect and... Um, and so you weaken the economy and you replace it. Uh, you you weaken the U.S. military, you embarrass it. You make it less lethal, less ready. That That is all a part of an agenda, even if some of those furthering the agenda don't appreciate that fact. So I absolutely think you're right that, that they, they desire uh, a global end state. It will secure for them in their own minds greater control and power and influence and um it's not out of the question that some of them believe it's it's incredibly important to reduce the world population in order to have a successful global state. Um, that's not a new idea. It's ancient. It's been around forever. How we're worried about overpopulation. That's always the concern. It always ha has been. In fact, in writing the book, I was studying some of Thomas Malthus's writings uh, from a long time ago, and he's saying essentially the same thing. But to your point, I believe it's entirely possible that they're they're sowing the seeds of their own destruction. And I don't think their plans are going to amount to what they think they will. Well, here's hoping. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, Matt, uh, I really want to thank you. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Um, yeah. And uh, people go buy your book. Um, I'll put the link in the description. Um, is there anything else you want to plug before we finish? I'm just grateful for podcasters. Uh, for alternative media outlets because um, they, they've really grown a bit in the last uh, little while, I suppose. Um, and it's important that people have a place to go and research and, and think for themselves and to gr wrestle with these ideas. So thanks for what you're doing. Oh, no problem, man. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. Hey everyone, thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.